I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Rosemary Schmidt, author of The Happy Clam. Like clams finding nourishment from filter feeding, Rosemary Schmidt derives strength from taking in the bits and bites of information swirling all around her and weaving it into a cohesive mosaic. Putting thoughts and ideas into a logical sequence that tells a story helps her make sense of a sometimes senseless world. Weaving research from the fields of sociology, psychology, and neurology with deeply personal, relatable anecdotes, she contemplates what brings people joy, how change happens, and what makes people tick. She shares stories related to her time as a supervisor, the sudden loss of her sister, and her mother's gradual decline and eventual passing. Without telling you what to do, the Happy Clam offers a roadmap and allows you to chart your own course. It will make you think and leave you smiling. Rosemary Schmidt is a Boston-area author, blogger, and professional geologist. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on today, Rosemary. Well, thank you, Catherine. Thank you for having me on. It's a, well, I'm, I'm glad you're going here. to actually make a sense out of a sometimes senseless world, a difficult thing to do. And I have to say, I don't always associate that with a geologist. So maybe we can make that connection for us. Well, there, there is a connection because if you think about it, getting perspective, when you think about time in a geologic context, you know, this is just a short blip. And so um, when you think about geologic time, over a span of millions of years, the glaciers just left here about whatever, you know, 10, 11,000 years ago, um, that, that things happen over a much longer landscape. And so um, in life, as far as gaining perspective, looking at when you get a little bit older and you look over a longer landscape, you, get, you gain perspective, I guess. Does that help? Yeah, that does help. Okay, I, I get that. I mean, in the con- our context, we have a very short period of time in the scheme of things, the geological mm-hmm. scheme of things, right, to make it right, to make sense of our world. And you're going to give, well, in the book, you offer a roadmap for us to do that. Uh, so how does you, your book, I mean, because there are a lot of books about how to be happy and how to, you know, navigate your world so that you're happier, but your book is a little different than that. And and why? It's um, it's different because it 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 came about not as like I'm going to write this book about happiness. I mean, in fact, everything that's in there it's as much for myself. I should probably go back and reread the book like every thirty days, actually. Yeah. Um, but it it came about after kind of a series of events. I mean, I didn't like I said, I really didn't know what was going to go into this the second book, um, and. In fact, it's kind of funny, when I was still working on the first book, I'd called my banker to talk about, you know, how to get a loan, to print the first book. And she said, well, whatever you do, keep on writing. You've got to write that second book. And I thought she was crazy because I didn't even know what that that second book would look like. But, you know, as you said, it it really did come about after, like, a series of events you know, the, the first three years of being a supervisor when your life is just set into warp speed also coincided with the last three years of my sister's life. And so, you know, those precious last years with her. Um, and and then, you know, following that, you know, the loss of my mom. And and so how do you, how do you be happy? And, 
and looking for that myself. And astonishingly, of course, as you know, you approach the age of fifty. Fifty is kind of the bottom of the curve. Um, you get less happy as you approach fifty, and after fifty, you start getting happier, so they say. And the research bears it out, actually. And it is because of looking back over that longer landscape. And so um, a lot of stuff, I, it, it doesn't... Uh, yeah, I want to stop you there. So you're talking sure. about the research, because, I mean, obviously, uh, you research sociology. I, I mentioned it, psychology, neurology. So after the age of 50, we get happier. And uh, I hadn't actually realize that um, because it seemed, you know, after, well, take women, for instance, after 50, you go one, usually, you know, the average age of menopause. Um, mm-hmm. So that women have all that to deal with. And then how does that fit into the baby boomers taking care of their parents, taking care of their kids? We talk about, you know, all of the responsibilities. Uh, do they get do we get more of them or less of them or are able to handle them better? I think handle that the end, that you're able to handle them better. Absolutely, no doubt, the stress level is ramped up, especially the sandwich generation taking care of both elderly parents and raising kids. And so kind of being pulled both directions as well as responsibilities at work. You know, you're probably in a, a place of greater responsibility. But... Um, again, that perspective and maybe the ability to, um, I, I, I say, to care less, or maybe what I mean is you can still care, care but be bothered less, um, to, to realize that we'll figure this out, too, because we've figured out all these other things before, and, and to not be you know, overly daunted by it. Um, I think that's a really good point. I mean, you become maybe a little less connected emotionally, and you've had a lot of experience, even if it's not the same problem or the same issue. You have a lot of experiences to draw upon that I can solve or resolve this without getting too excited or crazy. Right, right. Maybe it's like, oh, no, not again. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, you come up with your, your problem-solving tools, and, and maybe also... Um, the ability to, you know, if not be able to forgive, forget. A lot of things just kind of fall away. They just don't really matter in the big scheme of things. Um, so personally, I mean, you're talking about you were a supervisor that had all of the stuff you had to deal with, and then did everything come together sort of at the same time, the way you're describing it, the supervisor, your mother getting sick, your sister getting sick, and this was, I mean, is this sort of like a, a jumping off point for you to figure out, okay, I need to find this roadmap that's going to make sense of all this in terms of what's happening to me. Right. That, uh, you know, so supervisor totally stressed, working really long hours, and then all of a sudden, I mean, my sister, she was born with a congenital heart defect and, um, and one lung and asthma, so the odds were really stacked against her, you know, from the start. But she, you know, she defied all the odds. Um, you know, she grew. You know, she grew up. She got married. She had a child. She did a lot of stuff. They never. They didn't think she would live to be past three. So we were fortunate to have her as long as we did. Um, and so she was 50 when she passed. So you know, so that resulted in a lot of reflection and, and grieving. 
and then my mom's health started declining, and and that was kind of another whirlwind. And entering the world of of you know somebody who's suffering from dementia, and having to adapt to that. And I remember a social worker actually telling us one time, "Oh, you have to remember the three R's. You know that you can't bring her back to this world. All you can do is really, you know, reassure her." Uh, Everything's okay if she's seeing something that's not there, having hallucinations, uh, re- reassure her, redirect her. Hey, let's go do this instead. Let's go for a walk outside. And to, honestly, I don't remember what the third R was, but there were supposed to be three of them. And so that being able to redirect, and, and that's actually not just good advice for somebody suffering from dementia, but even for ourselves where we get into a, a negative uh, thought track to just kick ourselves into, you know, changing the station, change the channel, and redirect our own focus. Well, I think and, during and quarantine, they've been talking about one of the words that that's, keeps coming up is besides resiliency and reacting to COVID is, the, you know, pivoting. I mean, I'm thinking of, as you're talking about redirect, you have to pivot, you mm-hmm. have to get, go take another direction, which kind of fits into what you're talking about. Um, so if we're looking at the roadmap, what do, what do we do? What how do we, let, let's start from the beginning. Okay. Well, <laughs> I, you know, I, I can't scale it up the ladder, you know, to the different types of happiness. And, and there are, you know, a thousand little things we can do to, to move the needle a tick or two um, from, you know, like our physical surroundings, um, you know, cheery colors, plants, flowers, pets, fragrances, all of these things, just changing our environment, it can make a, a tremendous difference. Um, and, and so, be, you know, be deliberate, be intentional about what you surround yourself with. So that's, you know, from a physical standpoint, uh, from a, you know, mental, emotional, um, all of these, you know, things like positive mantras. Okay, <laughs> in the book I actually talk about Giselle and Tom Brady you know, and him having, you know, her helping him with mantras and, and stuff and positive thought. Alas, um, a sad tale for New England here. But, um, you know, but, but that kind of thing to kind of redirect your focus mentally, emotionally. And, but the, the biggest thing, though, affecting happiness, by, by and large, that it, it you know, by orders of magnitude greater than all those other tips and tricks and advice about your surroundings, is people. People are absolutely our number one source of joy and greatest source of sorrow as well. But we really need to tend to our garden of friends and those social networks. And so you can imagine COVID you know, that was the, the whammy. So here I am finishing my book, right? I took the month of February off to write it in February of 2020. And that Friday I hit save on my final draft, Friday, February 28th. You know, and here's this whole book about happiness and the importance of social connection and relationships. Uh, there are just the studies done that show um, that that's the number, number one predictor of living a long and healthy, happy life. And, and here we go, two weeks later, you know, we're sent home. It's, it's like closing hour at the bar, right? You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Get your laptops and, and get out of here. Um, so here we are thrown into this, this, this disconnect, you know, the disconnection and, and loss of that social interaction. 
I think that was the most painful thing of, of COVID and working like crazy. So the isolation, so, it's actually a 180 from what you're about what your book was about in 2020. <laughs> and exactly. all, yeah, you're supposed to connect and we can't connect and that's what makes you happy. And so I guess that kind of ties into the next question I was going to say, because some of the things that you just mentioned, uh, make sure, be aware of your environment, make sure and take a look at those things that really aren't adding to your happiness or your feelings of well-being and, and change those. So you mm-hmm. have control over a lot of things in your environment is what you're saying. And also in terms of positivity and thinking positive thoughts. But then there's the stuff like COVID and many other things and the personal things that happen to you that happen to us that we don't have control of. And so I always, you know, think that we really have to always be cognizant of what we can change and then be able to, as you say, uh, well, redirect. We don't have to have d- dementia to re- <laughs> redirect or pivot if things aren't working out. But we have to be aware, don't we? We have to, I mean, we don't have to be vigilant, but we do have to be aware of what's happening to us. People kind of get, I think, very routinized and don't really have an understanding of what makes them happy and what they can change. Absolutely. And and so, of course, there's the, you know, the work by Dr. Seligman about, you know, what you can change, what you can't. His first work, Learned Optimism, and, and all of that. And I think um, as far as making change, because honestly, the book is really sort of a, a meditation on how change happens, whether in the world or at the individual level. And, you know, what, what, what comes up is it's sometimes we think like, oh, we need to make big changes, and it's just too daunting, too hard, and, and you can't, it's, it's a bridge too far. And I think back to what my sister used to tell me, she actually volunteered at the crisis line, so she would be talking to people calling in crisis, maybe thinking about suicide, and talking to them, she always said, you know, you had to kind of meet people where they, where they were, and maybe they suffered from uh, substance abuse. She was also a substance abuse counselor, and you know, if you try to paint them this picture of this house and picket fence and everything, it's more than they can imagine. Even being, you know, sober one day is probably too much to imagine. You know, just that would be maybe a reasonable goal. So, but not only do you have to meet people where they are, you have to meet yourself where you are. And, and just recognize that every choice you make is, is a decision kind of carving out what your life looks like. And so... When I was working those really crazy hours, my early days as a supervisor, and coming home late and having, you know, my, my wife having, you know, saved dinner on a plate, you know, the hamburger with a little saran wrap over it in the fridge, and, you know, I've got it, and, and thinking and lying in bed at three in the morning going, you know, i got to change this. How do I change this? How do I change this? And almost, you know, hearing a voice saying, well, do you, do you want to change? And realizing that just laying there thinking, how can I change this? I had to first decide I wanted it to change. Because every day when I stayed another hour later at the office, sent one more email, I was making a choice whether I owned it or not. And so I had to make a decision that this needed to stop. This had to change. It it wasn't working. It didn't work for me. I'm thinking also maybe... Your wife could have made, you know, not just a little hamburger, a, little, a special dinner. 
Uh, you could make small, yeah, but no, small changes. And I think they, I mean, I think that's key what you said. I mean, people begin, I think a lot of us think, well, uh, I have to do a big change. I have to, you know, I should take a trip, for instance. Well, I don't have to take a trip to Europe. I could take a trip, you know, two hours away from my house and, and change the whole thing around, you know, or change the meal or to all those kinds of things. And it makes, it has a rippling effect when you make those small changes. Right, and and I guess the the dinner the the point is that I missed dinner. I wasn't home to sit and have dinner at the table. That's that's what I was missing out on. Yeah, and the isolation, yeah. eating your dinner with your hamburger alone. Well, not alone. I mean, just, <laughs> but you know, not together. You know, right, right. Uh, yeah, yeah, which is sad. Um, but as you said. I mean, I think that's the key. You can change those kinds of, you can make changes. Maybe you can't have dinner together every single day of the week, but maybe twice a week or three times a week. Those are, you know, just those small, those differences. I mean, we're using the dinner thing, but they're, um, they make huge differences in how you feel about yourself and your relationships mm-hmm. and, yeah, and your connectedness, as you're saying, connectedness. Um, so, your stories, um, I mean, in, in this roadmap, we started, you're starting with t- telling us what we can do to, to make changes so that we can be happy or happier. Um, what else can we do? Well, I think for our, our world that we live in now, um, I, think, I think one of the challenges is how polarized and how divisive things are. And to try to relate to each other, to other individuals as individuals, and try to, you know, when we when we recognize other people as just part of a group, that tends to reduce the empathy, and and so, you know, it, it makes it harder to relate to them. It, it really um, closes. It, it it just creates a gap in empathy. And seeing them as individuals closes it, and and I think that's the piece I would wish for the world. Actually, um, well, are you saying like we label people? Okay, you're a Republican, you're a Democrat, and that's it. And I know what I think of Republicans, and I know what I think of Democrats. So that's what I think of you, depending on who you, you know, who you, uh, whether you are a Democrat or a Republican, and and then it just yes. yeah. Rather exactly. Than who, uh, mm-hmm. Exactly, and then it just there's there's just the empathy goes you know goes away, and I just think of this this quote by you know George Eliot, actually Marianne Evans, mm-hmm. you know what do we live for if it is not to make life less difficult to each other, and I think that that is really at its at its core. What can we do for each other, and developing that outward focus. And and kind of the last chapter kind of gets more into maybe the spiritual plane, which um, we celebrate everything at our house. We celebrate all the holidays, um, and uh, you know we we don't we don't draw those lines, I guess. Um, so you guys you celebrate every say religious holiday, Christmas, Hanukkah, yeah. Passover, Easter. Is that what you're saying? And yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we we're you know, I come from you know, a Catholic background, my spouse is Jewish and uh and so 
you know, kind of, you know, just kind of look at every, you know, everything across, you know, that why... Um, you have a I zillion holidays to celebrate. <laughs> yes, yes. And that's a yes. good thing. Yeah. Yeah, well, plus, I, I, I mean, I kind of worry about organized religion because sometimes that, that gets into that group labeling and group group definition. And so if, uh, you know, if you get out of that a little bit, it, you know, in fact, I would say if you go back to the story of Babel, right, like, I guess there was a time according to you know to the the writings and that that there was a time when everybody spoke the same language thought the same way and everybody got along and um and i've got a theory it's just a theory that you know maybe you know the devil made a bet with god right that hey everybody's getting along so nicely here in your creation because they all think alike look alike sound alike of course they get along what if they all spoke different languages and looked different and, and God said, no, no, these are my creation. They're lovely people. They're, they're going to be wonderful. They'll get along. And the devil said, yeah, right. <laughs> and so, um, you know, Babel, now you've got all these different cultures, different languages, and, you know, I'm, I'm afraid that, you know, it, it was a, that was maybe a dangerous bet to make. But how different, you know, is that idea compared to the modern office or politics where we have different ideas, people are coming from different backgrounds, and yet... How do you ensure every voice is heard, honored, respected, and everyone is given their dignity that they're due? It's a, it's a birthright. You know, if you read, like, Dr. Donna Hicks' work, um, you know, I think that's, you know, that that's in my theory anyway. Well, I think the message is, and this may be going along with your theory, I mean, we need to talk to, are we, the message has to be that, I mean, this is nothing new, but that, isn't it diversity which makes us strong? I mean, isn't that, I mean, to me, that's the key. I mean, having everybody the same, looking the same, talking the same, believing in the same, is, is pretty, sta- it's a, uh, in physics, what is it? It's uh, if you don't have input, new input, the system just stagnates, whether it's um, a physical or even in, in sociology, some of those terms are that, uh, I can't think of the word, but you, um, the system dies. Yeah, it, there's, right, it just kind of, it's very homogeneous and it, yeah. it just, you know, it stagnates. And yet one of the challenges with diversity is because the studies show, and I, I talk about this in one of the chapters of the book, that as much as it's easy to say, oh, that diversity is great and it's wonderful, we should encourage it and ensure all voices are heard at the table. But when they actually do studies, what they find is, for example, um, it, people would prefer to work with people who are like them. That's just kind of our, how we are. And, um, and, and yet the groups that had more diversity, had more different kind of backgrounds, men, women, uh, ethnicities, had more creative ideas, were more productive, but people were more comfortable working with people like themselves. So that's that's one of the challenges. And to get back to the nature um, parallel, as you said, I mean, the reality is purple loose strife, that purple thing that's taken over all our wetlands, like it would happily take over every wetland if it could. I mean, that's, you know, it, it's, it, one species can dominate and it, will try to, but it, you know, it rule, you know, it overtakes like the, the biodiversity in the system. 
um, which is not ideal. So, we have to read your book and (laughs) (laughs) expound on some of these ideas more because we only have a few minutes left. Mm -hmm. Um, But... um, the happy clam is going to help if if it is that roadmap and it roadmap and it is it will help us to do some of the things that we've been talking about on the show but we haven't been able to obviously cover everything that's in the book which is a good thing um <laughs> this is your well, second book hard you to do it took me 14 yeah. years to write it so if we yeah. covered it well, okay. in 30 minutes that would be pretty shocking <laughs> right but yeah we didn't talk about that the process of 14 years um that that is a long time i mean i have a lot of authors who take 14 years 20 years and then i uh, there's some who write a book in 4 months which is a you know a different process i'm assuming that's another that's another show but um i'm well we have 3 minutes left now so give us a website where we can um get information about the book and maybe about your next book your third book who knows um and about right. <laughs> yeah so um so i also write a blog it's called rosebud's blog which you can find on rosebudsblog.com but you can also get there through happyclam.net or mm-hmm. gainline.com that's the name of the publishing company g a i n l i n e and the book's available on you know bookshop.org, Better World Books, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and also a lot of independent bookstores. And it's honestly, I feel like it's my life's best work, and I really just want to share it with the world. It's kind of a cornucopia of tips, advice, research, poems, stories, and even recipes. So I really am just happy to share it with the world. What about on Audible? Do you, do, is, it, is it available on Audible? Not yet is what I would say. Yeah, it should be. Yeah, I've got to work on that. (laughs) Uh, I mean, so many people, including myself, and I I mentioned this on the show quite a few times, but, you know, I do a lot of walking and being in places where I'm waiting or sitting or traveling, and, boy, it's really good, I mean, I think, to have, like, say, your book on Audible. It's a, so, keep working on it. (laughs) More to do. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> More to do. Right, exactly. Um, I've been talking to author Rosemary Schmidt. Her book is The Happy Clam. Thanks for being on the show today. Oh, thank you so much. Happy to be here. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 